you do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 5. Now, we as a church have been walking through Exodus for the last couple months and we'll be spending quite a long time in Exodus, although we'll take some breaks as the year moves on. Exodus is a fascinating story. It's, it's fascinating because it is a story that has been told again and again and again. Uh, it's a story that has been recounted in books, it's been recounted in movies, it's been recounted in radio broadcasts. I remember growing up, when I was growing up in the 90s, every Easter they would play the Ten Commandments by Charlton Heston. Or I guess he's the lead actor, he didn't write the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and I, I don't know why Easter was when that was played, but, but that was my first encounter with the Exodus story, was this cinematic depiction of it. A couple years later, Steven Spielberg produced a film, The Prince of Egypt. It was a musical and it recounts the story of the Exodus. Most recently, there's been this sort of summer blockbuster called Exodus Gods and Kings that tells the story of the Exodus very loosely. But the story has been told again and again and again. I would venture to say if you're here this morning and you have no familiarity with the Bible, you still have a basic sense of what goes on in this book. And listen, I don't, I don't think it's bad to produce movies that are based on the narrative of Scripture. And I realize that if we were to read the first 12 chapters of Exodus aloud, it would take about 20 minutes. And so if you're trying to produce a feature-length film, you've got to sort of expound on some things. But the danger when we come to biblical stories that we've primarily encountered through media depictions is that we can lose touch of what the Bible actually says. There are things in these movies that we take as gospel, even though the gospels never quite say anything about it. Sometimes I think we misunderstand the story of the Exodus because we've been trained in the movie version of it. And the movie version of it goes something like this. God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to set his people free. The goal of Exodus is the liberation of God's people from slavery to freedom. Interestingly though, if you actually read the text of the Exodus, God is not interested in Israel being set free to wander in the desert and do whatever they want. Actually, when, when God meets with Moses at the burning bush, he says, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they may serve me. We stop before the serve me. The, the children's song that I learned growing up, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, let my people go. Huh. Yeah, 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 nobody knows it. <laughs> A couple people. Maybe it's just because let my people go, huh, so that they might serve me in the wilderness doesn't flow well. But that's actually what God said. And we'll see that in our text this morning. When we last left off, Moses had met with God. God had given him very specific instructions. I need you to go back to the land of your upbringing. And I need you to tell Pharaoh to release my people so that they can go on a three days journey into the wilderness and worship and serve me there. And then God had met with Moses' brother Aaron and said, I need you to go meet your brother. He's coming back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron had experienced this joyous reunion and then they had gone to the elders of Israel and said, this is God's plan. And everyone was on board with it. 
And with all of that having taken place, we come to our passage for the morning. Let me just read it for us and we'll dive in. And would you hear the word of God in Exodus 5, chapter 1, we're told this. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people in the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go offer sacrifice to our God. Let the heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Exodus 5 recounts the first encounter between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. God has met with Moses. Moses has met with Aaron. Moses and Aaron have met with the elders of Israel. And now Moses and Pharaoh have their first confrontation. Moses is fairly bold in his initial declaration declaration. Thus says the Lord. This is a phrase in the rest of the Old Testament that the prophets will use to introduce a direct word of revelation. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But notice, like I said before, we always stop with just let my people go. That's where we end the story. And yet God is not interested in Israel being set free to do whatever they want. God is interested in Israel changing hands. God is not interested in Israel living as a nation with no masters. God is interested in Israel being set free from the tyranny of Pharaoh to come under his rule and reign. Listen, we are so fortunate that we live in a country with tremendous freedom. We have the freedom to worship wherever we choose, or not to worship if we so choose. We have the freedom to go to whatever school we would like. Insofar as we're financially able, we can live sort of wherever it is that we want. And in a country with all of this freedom, it is easy to be deceived. Don't be deceived. As many freedoms as we may have, human beings are never truly free no matter where they live. We are always, always serving or following someone or something. That is the basic disposition of the human heart. We always worship, we always serve, we always follow. The real question is not whether or not you're free. The question is who is it that you serve? And so often this is where people go wrong. Because we take good things, gifts that God has given us, and we set them up as ultimate things. We set them up as masters. We set them up as things that we will follow with all of our hearts. And these good things are indeed good. So often it's our family, and everything in our life is oriented around our family. We would do anything. They are our first priority. They are our only priority. 
Listen, family is God's good gift. It's God's idea in the first place. But your wife, your children, they make great companions and they make terrible gods. Terrible gods. And if you set them up as ultimate, if you set them up as masters, you are going to be profoundly disappointed. Maybe it's your bank account. And you have devoted your life, you have apprenticed your life to this singular mission to make sure that you are always in the green and spectacularly so. But I'll tell you that that is a terrible master to serve. About 15 years ago, there was an author named David Foster Wallace who was invited to give the commencement address at Kenyon College. He wasn't a Christian. He never converted to Christianity over the course of his life. But his commencement address has become something of an iconic speech in the last 15 or so years. He's talking to this group of college graduates and he says this, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of a God or a spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Wallace is right. In life, we don't get to choose whether we serve or whether we follow. We only get to choose what it is we follow or who it is we follow. The story of the Exodus is not God's people were slaves and now they're free. The story of the Exodus is God's people were under the heavy hand of a tyrant. And God brought them under the rule of a good king. And look at where God wants to lead the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Israel is living in Egypt in famine. They're living in poverty. They're living in scarcity. God wants to lead them into abundance. Can I ask you to just take stock of your own life? Is this the sort of king that you follow? Whatever you've set up as master of your life, is it leading you to abundance or to scarcity? Is the master of your life the Lord or is it something or someone else? Here's a great way to take stock of that. Ask yourself this question. What can't you live without? What is the one thing that if you lost it, it would utterly ruin you? Now, let's be clear. There are a lot of things that would lay us flat if we lost them. But what is the one thing that would destroy you to lose? And in honestly answering that question, you find your master. This is the thing that I've devoted my life to. Of course, Pharaoh's not interested in letting God's people go. Tyrants never are. So Moses speaks with all of this boldness, and then Pharaoh says, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? And I should let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, in, in this particular period of human history, the people of Egypt and the Pharaoh of Egypt believed that Pharaoh was divine, that he was in some sense a god. And so when Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, who is the Lord, he, he's speaking from the perspective of somebody who sees himself as divine. He's saying, hey, I am a god. I've never bumped into Yahweh at any of the god mixers. 
Like he hasn't come to any of the Christmas parties. I don't know who your God is. And moreover, I'm not going to do what he says. I'm not impressed. Uh, Some Old Testament scholars have said that the next 10 chapters or so of the book of Exodus is Yahweh's answer to Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? And then the plagues come and God says, you're about to learn. But it's an interesting question. Who is this God that you follow? I've never heard of him. Doesn't ring a bell. It's an interesting question in particular because of how Moses and Aaron respond. Because Moses and Aaron say this to Pharaoh's question. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Can you hear the change in tone? The, the, the first petition, thus saith the Lord, is pretty confident. It's fairly demanding. This is how it's going to be. But as soon as the slightest bit of resistance is introduced, as soon as Pharaoh doesn't do exactly what they said, they start with the pleading. Please, please let us go. They start to panic. You can sense the anxiety building. There's no reason why this should happen. God was pretty upfront with Moses in the beginning. You're going to tell him to let you all go. He's going to say no. But for some reason, Moses is shocked by that. It's also fascinating because this is a textbook case of them going off script. You see, if you read Exodus 4, God gave Moses and Aaron very specific instructions for what they were supposed to do. Here's what you're supposed to say, and here's who you're supposed to bring with you. God actually says, bring the elders of Israel with you, and they don't do it. They also don't actually say what God told them to say to Pharaoh. And when things start to go bad, they get further and further and further off script. But that's what happens to us so often. Um, A couple years ago, uh, I led a missions trip to the United Kingdom. And part of going into the United Kingdom is that you have to pass through the UK Border Patrol. And they're kind of intense, rightfully so. But it can be a little bit intimidating as you're holding out your passport and explaining why you're in the country. And sometimes they ask questions that you just don't know the answers to. They ask things like, what's the address of the place you're staying? And more often than not, we don't look up the addresses of the hotels that we're checking into. They ask questions like, what's the phone number of the person that you're staying with? And so we had this group of students that were going to the UK. And so we sat down with them and we said, okay, hey, just so you know, they're going to ask you a lot of questions. Here's the answers. Here's what you're supposed to say. This is where you're going. This is who you're staying with. This is the phone number. These are all the cities you're going to be in. Don't freak out. They freaked out. Um, I was at the tail end of about a 20, 20 student group. And some of them, in their panic, started going off script. And instead of honestly answering the questions they started stretching the truth to the point of incredulity. So that I got to the end of the trip, or the the end of the line, and and they asked me, so how many people are you traveling with? 19, 20 people. It's interesting, because we've had about 20 people come through from the same city as you, and they all said they were traveling by themselves. (laughs) I, (laughs) I couldn't tell you why they did that. So... Where are you staying? We're staying in in this city. Really? Because some of those people said that they go to Cambridge and Oxford. They're here for university. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's not true. Right? There's this, danger, there's this danger in going off script. It happens all the time when we panic. And more often than not, it reveals something about us. Notice what Moses and Aaron say in their panic. When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? They say, please let us go into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Who is the Lord? They say, he's going to kill us if you don't let us go. Here's the fascinating thing. He never said that. Like if you read Exodus 4, God does not make those threats. He warns Egypt, but he says nothing about pursuing the people of Israel. God lays out in front, he's not going to let you go, but I'm there with you. Moses and Aaron answer the question, who is the Lord? And they say, he's the God who's going to destroy us. It's almost as if Pharaoh doesn't know who God is and Moses and Aaron don't quite understand it either. And I wonder sometimes if this isn't part of our problem. I wonder sometimes if it's difficult for us to follow Jesus because we understand so little of his character that other things seem better. And so we follow them instead. Not because they are better, but because we misunderstand the character of Christ. In instances like this, we desperately desperately need people to remind us of who God is. We have to be reminded of the character of God. We need to be surrounded by people who can bear witness to it when our strength falters. I think I mentioned this one of the last times I preached, but back in May I had um, something akin to a nervous breakdown, which has happened before. Um, It was a combination of things. I had I'd been doing two or three classes on campus for grad school. I was teaching foundations. I was teaching in college and career. I had all of these speaking engagements I'd agreed to, so I I stretched myself way too thin. But then I also had a couple health scares. Nothing terrible, but being the nervous person that I was, I was terrified. And it was right around the same time that my wife and I had started to talk about the possibility of getting married. And I started, to, I started to come apart. I had a conversation with Tom Eichem, our executive pastor, and I told him, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And my wife, being the brilliant woman that she is, saw through my facade. She asked me multiple times, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. And then I sort of looked away and, and died inside. And she said, you're not fine. No, I really am fine. No, you're not fine. No, I, really, I am. No, you're not. You're right. And I just, I told her, I was like, all of this good stuff is happening. Like, my life is really, really good right now. It's the best I can ever remember it being. And I'm fully convinced that God is about to step on me and ruin everything. Like, I'm fully convinced that he, he gave me all these good things to go, hey, this is what it feels like, so I can just crush you real quick. I'm afraid I'm about to enter into a book of Job scenario. And we were sitting on the back porch of her parents' house and she looked at me and she was like, Travis, do you really think that this is what God is like? That he's nice to you just so it stings more when he crushes you? I was like, well, when you put it like that, no. But if I'm being honest, yes. If I'm being honest, yes, this is what I think that God is like. And she looked at me and she was like, Travis, this is not the God that we serve. But even if all the things you're afraid of come to pass, 
do you not think he'll give you the grace to get through it? Even if every single one of your fears comes true, do you not think that he will give you the grace to endure it? And in that moment, she reminded me of the character of God when I was tempted to forget it. We need people like that in our lives. In some sense, that's what worship is. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that we don't just sing to God, but we actually sing to one another when we gather together. That worship is a way of teaching and admonishing one another so that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. When you come to worship, you're not just singing to God. Your voice is singing to the other people in the room, reminding other Christians in the midst of difficulty that God is a good, good father. That is who he is. That is what he's like. Don't forget it. That he is a way maker. That he does keep his promises. Don't forget it. Don't fail to live in light of it. Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? Moses and Aaron muddle their response. They mumble through it. But then the king of Egypt says to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. The Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And this is sort of an ancient construction technique. In, in modern times, sometimes when we lay concrete, we'll put something akin to chicken wire in it to strengthen the bonds and, and the structural integrity of what we're building. In the ancient world, straw kind of served as the equivalent when they made bricks. It was a, it was a bonding agent. It was something that kept the mud together. It was very difficult to make bricks without straw. Have you ever tried to make a mud pie and, and keep it together? It won't stay together. There, there's something that needs to, to bind it. And so when Pharaoh says, you're going to make bricks without straw, the implication is this, that Pharaoh has been providing the straw so that they can meet the quota. We need 10,000 bricks today. And then he says, no more straw, go find it yourselves. So he's adding another step. He's saying, you're going to have to go hunt this down. Yes, I know that you can't really make bricks without it. Yes, I know that it's even more work. Yes, I know that the expectations are outrageous to begin with. But let me just add another step. And in Pharaoh's mind, this is what's happening. All of these slaves have too much time on their hands to dream of freedom. And so if they just work harder they'll get the silly idea of following their God out of their heads. If I just crush them under the weight of expectations, this whole idea of freedom will leave them. Can I just tell you, this is what tyrants always do. And I'm not just talking about political tyrants. I'm talking about the things that lord themselves over us in the place of God. I'm talking about the, the, the tyranny of following the things of this world. We always, always, always reach a point when we have chosen a master other than Christ, we always reach a point where we're making bricks without straw. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we labor, we realize that it will never be enough and it will destroy us. Maybe you found yourself there. I don't know what you follow. I don't know who it is you follow. I don't know 
what it is that you've set up as master of your life. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's substances. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's pursuing ideas of beauty. But can I tell you that at some point or another, all of these false masters will lead you to the point of exhaustion. And maybe you find yourself there right now. Can I just tell you that the exhaustion at the end of following false gods is God's gift to you? In the words of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, when you reach the end of yourself, you, when you realize that no amount of labor will ever set you free from the tyranny of things that aren't Christ, that's a gift. Let me explain what I mean by that. So when I was in elementary school, I became obsessed with the idea of having a swimming pool in our backyard. Um, and I thought it was a pretty easy process. I was like, you just dig a hole and you have a pool, right? Um, and there was one summer that I spent uh, the afternoons at my cousin's house with my cousin Ben, my brother, my Aunt Mary. And I went to my Aunt Mary and I said, if I dig a hole in your backyard, can we make it a pool? And I don't think she was listening to me, to be honest. I don't think she was paying attention to what I was saying because she was like, yeah, whatever, sure, go ahead. So me and my cousin Ben and my brother, we all go to their shed and we take out all of the shovels and, and all of the, the different tools and we just start digging. And I was sort of, I was, I was the taskmaster in this, right? I was the one who wanted the pool. They just kind of did whatever I said. And I realize memory is a tricky thing, so I don't actually know how long we spent digging this hole. For me, it felt like the whole summer that we spent digging this hole in my Aunt Mary's backyard. At one point, my brother disappeared and we found out that it was because he had fallen into the hole. <laughs> this is the sort of hole that we were digging. It took us like 30 minutes to find him. And we dug and we dug and we dug and we dug. And by the end of our time digging, I was fully convinced this is the best pool I've ever seen. And so I went to my Aunt Mary and I said, we dug the hole, can you, can you pour some concrete in it so that the water will stay? I don't think that's how pools work either. And she was like, ah, oh, you know, not quite deep enough. Maybe next summer. And I went away sad without a pool. Now, here's the deal. I was 10 years old at the time. The reality is that it was probably a really effective way to help an energetic 10-year-old burn off his energy. <laughs> but if every summer I kept coming back and digging, and digging, and digging. While my Aunt Mary knew full well there was never going to be a pool, no matter how far I dug, no matter how symmetrical the sides, there's something about that that becomes really mean, right? She lets me keep digging, knowing full well there's nothing at the bottom. It doesn't matter how hard I work, it doesn't matter how hard I dig, it doesn't matter how many other neighborhood kids I enlist to help in this project, there is no pool no matter how much effort I put into it. The most merciful thing she can do is say, Travis, there's no pool there. There will never be a pool there, stop. In some ways, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we hit the wall, realizing that the things that we've been following, the masters we've been serving, the idols that we've put on the throne that God belongs, when we realize that there is no life in them, God is in his mercy saying, there's no pool at the bottom. Stop. There is no life in these things. And I know it hurts to find that out, but it's the most merciful thing that God can do. 
Stop digging. You're making bricks without straw. It's an impossible task. You will find yourself exhausted. Can I just ask you, if, if during this time you've been thinking about the things that are sitting on the throne of your life, the masters that you've been following, and you're realizing that this is, I'm not following Jesus right now, are you, aren't you exhausted? Like, aren't you tired of digging knowing there's nothing at the bottom? I love what Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron. I wonder if you caught this. They make their second appeal. And Pharaoh says this, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And then Pharaoh says, behold, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest. This is the difference between Yahweh and the tyrants of this world. This is the difference between the idols we follow and the one true God. Idols demand backbreaking labor, and Yahweh leads us into rest. This is why Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are weary and I will give you rest for your souls. Pharaoh knows what God is up to. But sometimes we don't. So can I just plead with you as we come to the end of our time together, take stock of your life. Who is it that you follow? What is it that you follow? Is it the God who leads us to rest? Or is it one of the idols of this world that will never, no matter how hard you dig, produce life? If you're in a place where you have reached the end of your digging, I would love to talk to you. We have prayer partners in the back that would love to talk to you. I'll be in the corner. I would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus our king who leads us into Sabbath and rest. We're gonna continue to worship together. Could I pray for us as we step into this next time? Father, we love you. God, we thank you that you have set us free so that we might serve you. That you lead us out of bondage in Egypt into a feast in the wilderness. That you are the God who brings rest. Teach us to rest in the finished work of Christ, in the promise of his return, in the presence of his love, we ask all these things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we say, amen. Would you stand and continue in worship?
So this week, may you go into the world following the king who leads us out from under tyranny towards a feast, towards rest. Pray that we see you next week. Would you go in peace to love and serve the Lord?